Amen. You can be seated. As we go into our prayer this morning, I want to read the description of God our Father from this passage for this week. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Father, we gather in your presence today from all walks of life, all sorts of different backgrounds and personal stories reflected in this room with only a few things in common, that we were created in your image, that we sinned against you and your creation. We sinned and did not follow your pattern of life you had designed for humanity. But then we also hold in common that we have confessed, been given new life, been restored into relationship with you, the one who dwells in inapproachable light. And so, Father, to you we give the honor this morning, the blessed and only sovereign King, the King of all nations, the Lord of all creation. And Father, we sit in your presence this morning, longing Longing for more of you. Longing to see your glory at a greater level. Longing for the day that we would be welcomed into your eternal kingdom and all would be made right in all of creation. And fathers, we anticipate that day. We pray for this day. We pray because we know that there are those that are hurting all around us. Those within our own church family. We pray for those that are sick, for those that are grieving, for those that are hurting with any number of cares and concerns that this fallen world throws at us each and every day. And Father, we pray for the world around us because we are reminded every day how broken it is. But Father, even the examples we see, they're only a small glimpse of the spiritual forces of darkness that gather all around us to destroy the work of your hand. But Father, we long to see you moving in light righteousness and in truth. God, when we gather in your name, it's with a request of Father, send us out to be your ambassadors of light, to display your glory, to display your grace. Because God, we know the world is broken. We know that we cannot provide the answer. But Father, you've already given the answer the life, death, and resurrection of your Son. So God, now use us. Use us to just reflect the light, to shine it into the darkest places. We pray for our city, for Dalton, Georgia, to be a place where the light of Christ shines freely through us and into the hearts and minds of people 
as they experience all the various types of brokenness the world sends our way. We pray for our nation. Father, we praise you for pockets of revival, pockets of your movement that we see. God, we pray that you would move even more in those places. Father, we also want to be ready here. We want you to revive us. Not just revive those in other places, but revive us, Father. May we freely experience more of your grace as we wait in your presence, as we seek your face, as we, as we long to bring you honor and glory and proclaim your eternal dominion. Oh, Father, move in us. Because we, we're weak, we're broken, we're desperate. God, remind us of our desperation. Remind us of our dependence. Because it is in our weakness that you are made strong. So, Father, in order to make yourself strong, make us weak. Make us a people that find no glory in ourselves, find no assurance or safety in our own efforts, in our own wisdom, in our own abilities. May we only find rest in you, Father. God, we praise you for an amazing opportunity we have today to open your word as a resurrected people, as a people saved by your grace, who have new life in you. And God, your word now speaks directly to us. And it gives us good direction for today. And so, Father, speak through your word. Speak in us so that we can be sent out for your glory on your mission. Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all for joining us this morning as we worship a risen Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords together. Uh, a few things going on that you need to know about. Let's go ahead and dismiss the kids, first of all. And that's um, three years old through the fifth grade can make their way upstairs. And parents, you can pick them up upstairs at the end of the service. Uh, first thing up tonight uh, is kind of a normal night. We haven't had a ton of those recently, but tonight is uh, fairly normal as we have um, kids ministry, youth ministry, and some life groups here on campus. Um, all of that is 5.30 to 7.30 um, this evening. Um, starting next week, we want to make you aware that our elder election process will start next Sunday. And what that means, just as an explanation, because there's lots of um, new people and um, and we honestly have had to do it a couple different ways over the last couple years. But here's how the elder elections work. Um, every member family will have an envelope on a table in the back of the church next Sunday. And every member family will have one of those envelopes. You'll need to get it. And you'll see in there a ballot that lists every male member of the church and, and tells you um, who's eligible and who is ineligible for election as elders. On the back of that piece of paper, you're going to see the elder qualifications from 1 Timothy and Titus. We've talked a lot about those over the last few months. We um, kind of had a, a longer service in those, or a longer series in those in November. Um, but those, pass or those passages will be listed on that form. We want you to prayerfully consider 
who the Lord would be, would be calling to serve as leaders in our church. And, and we'll spend a couple weeks doing the elder elections, and then we'll spend a couple weeks doing the deacon elections. So I'll tell you more about that um, next week. I'll remind you of it, but just know if you are a member of the church, you should have a ballot back there. Um, so the voting is, is, um, is not, you will not get a ballot if you have not completed the membership process yet. So that's a reminder of, uh, we see membership as an important process and it leads to the election of the officers, the leaders of our church. So that starts next week. Um, I also want to make you aware, last week during our missions conference, um, we presented to you our missions project for 2023. And we're going to continue to receive that uh, giving towards that project for the rest of this month. But here's the project in a nutshell. The Jesus Film Project, which we heard a lot about over um, last weekend, is broadcasting the Jesus Film on 15 different um, TV stations, um, three different times on each TV station over Easter weekend of this year. So just coming up pretty soon. And we would like to help fund one of those showings, basically. One station, one of those showings, and, and our goal is about $7,000 that we want to provide from our church, from our families, to present Jesus in one of the places where suffering on this earth is, is most intense right now. About, about a month ago, early February, there was an earthquake that destroyed, the, the count I saw yesterday was 600,000 apartments and 200,000 different buildings that were destroyed. The, the latest death count is over four, uh, 45,000 people, and they expect it to push significantly higher and higher as they continue to go through the rubble. And so this is a place of great need. It's a place of great pain. And it's a place where sometimes when the world is the darkest, we're reminded that the light of Christ can shine the brightest. And so we want to be a part of funding and allowing the Jesus film and the message of the gospel to be broadcast over national television there in this nation of great need. And so if you want to give to that, you can give on the app. You can give through the boxes in the back. You can give it directly. Just bring it by the church office or mail it to the church office. You can give online however you normally do. And just mention um, online, there's a, there's a thing that you can select for the 2023 Missions Project. You can put that in the memo line if you write a check. We will continue to receive funds for that for the rest of the month of March. Also, a big thing going on. There's a piece of paper on that back table there. This is an information sheet about a summer mission trip to Romania that will be June the 30th into early July, um, July 11th, 12th, 13th. The return date is a little bit fuzzy right now, depending on who signs up and what we're able to line up in, in terms of work projects there. Um, we know that part of it will be a youth camp for 80 youth that are coming from, this, from multiple different churches in the Cluj area. We are also hoping to have at least some of the team that will stay a couple days longer that will do a basically a relief delivery work into Ukraine. You know that for the last year, as the war has been ongoing in, Rome, in Russia and Ukraine, we have funded over $30,000 through our Romanian church partners to go into Ukraine for relief work. And we would like for this short-term team, for at least some of the participants, to be able to stay and be a part of that relief work there and maybe even do a youth camp for some Ukrainian youth as well. Um, we have had amazing opportunities to provide um, 
supplies of various kinds into Ukraine. And some of you may, be, may have the opportunity to be a part of the delivery there as well. There is a meeting about this this afternoon at 4.30 in the room right behind me, the Backstage Cafe. It'll be 4.30. It'll be over before the evening programming starts at 5.30. Um, Tom Perry is the group leader. He's the key contact person for this. But please, if you have any interest, and listen, if, the, if you're like, well, the Romania part sounds good, but going into Ukraine scares me, that's okay. Come to the meeting anyway and at least, at least talk about it, at least hear a little bit more about the plan. That's 4.30 um, this afternoon in the Backstage Cafe. A um, couple other things, simple things. Men's Breakfast on March 18th, you can sign up for that. Um, baby dedications, we're going to do two Sundays of baby dedications. So if you have a child that you have not brought to be dedicated before the Lord, we'd love for you to participate in one of those Sundays, either March 19th or March 26th. We also have a baptism coming up in April that we'd love for you to participate in. And um, last thing, and for, yeah, this really is my last thing for today, because this is an exciting Sunday. Um, so this is a, there's a flyer out there that you might have received on your way in. We, this is a one-week one seminar that we're basically doing to provide some counsel and some support for some of our young families. If you've ever had questions about legal issues relating to being a parent of young kids and the importance of wills and what kind of medical forms you need to have, um, if you have ever been overwhelmed by those type of questions, we're going to provide, um, we've got some, some guys that want to come and speak to us about that, that are in our local community, that, that love to support young families in these questions. And that is March 26th. 5.30 to 7.30, during our normal evening programming, so we'll have kids ministry and youth ministry ongoing, in that room right behind me, we're going to have a special presentation about this. Um, if you have anybody outside the church that has these questions, that you think might have these questions, or you think doesn't have these questions, but should have these questions, you can provide this to them. It's open to the community. The goal of this is actually to be a service to our community for other people as well. We would love it if the majority of our people are not, uh, the majority of the people that come are not our people, but people from the community that we can serve in this way. So please take one of those. Um, there's other stuff going on in the life of the church. You see that in the weekly newsletter, email, and on the bulletin. But I'm going to invite AJ to come up and uh, join me on stage. Um, AJ is going to be closing our series on 1 Timothy today and uh, speaking to us from 1 Timothy chapter 6. All right. How's everybody doing? I'm a little loud, aren't I? No, just right. Everybody can hear me? All right, good. All right, cool. Um, just a word of wisdom that any of you guys, I don't know how many of y'all are going to be in a situation where you're going to wear one of these. Um, I would not suggest holding a one-year-old or almost one-year-old that notices everything and tries to worship while doing it at the same time. Because uh, I don't know if y'all looked over, but me and her were having a wrestling match uh, during worship. But it was great. Um, and so we are... I'm excited to be here with you guys this morning. I'm excited to uh, just open up the Word and just to finish out our study of 1 Timothy. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, let's open up to it. 1 Timothy 6, um, and we are going to be looking at verses 11 through 21. Um, and so we have been going at 1 Timothy for several months now. Um, we have covered a lot of different subjects. And so as we are looking at the conclusion of this, I thought it would be good for us to look back at everything that we have covered, or at least some of the major themes that we have covered up to this point. So looking back, we see that Paul is writing to Timothy in Ephesus, that, that Timothy um, is a beloved son in the faith um, that is now a young pastor in Ephesus of a church that Paul had started. 
um, and that he is now um, equipping Timothy to continue the ministry that he has already started there, and that throughout the rest of this letter, he is using it um, to lay a good foundation for Timothy, but to also build up the church. And so there's a few major themes that we look over um, as we have gone through these six chapters. Let's see where they're at. All right, here we go. Warning against false teachers. We see that throughout this entire book, we see that one of the major things is that warning um, against the false teachers, those that are looking to uh, misconstrue the gospel, that those that are looking to twist it in order to cause people to fall astray, in order to lead people outside of the church, and that Timothy is charged to fight against those things. We see that we need to protect doctrine. That we need to have an accurate understanding of who God is, of who Christ is, of who we are, and what that means for us inside of the gospel. We see that he's also preparing church leaders. We see that church leaders are to serve, to demonstrate maturity and skills, and that they are to demonstrate character, that they are to serve others, that they are to love others. But that many of those same things that leaders are called to are the same things that we are called to. We looked at it specifically with elders and with deacons, but we see that many of those things also come to us. Um, and that we see that also that we are preparing life in the Christian community. We get to see um, how we are supposed to relate to those that are inside of our congregation, that those that are inside of our own Christian community, um, specifically with widows, um, that we are supposed to care for them um, in a loving way, that we are also supposed to have relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ um, but that we are supposed to pursue all of those relationships with purity. Um, and so that brings us to chapter 6. And if y'all will, just kind of look a little bit at the beginning of it, um, starting um, in verse 2, 2b, and then kind of continuing through that. We see two weeks ago that we looked at false teachers and true contentment. We see that Paul is warning Timothy against false teachers who are teaching a different doctrine. That they are puffed up with deceit and truly understanding nothing that they crave controversy, that their words are many, and that the quarreling that they produce destructive fruit that causes division amongst the believers. It causes people to get distracted into materialism, discontentment, and selfish desire for financial gain through the ministry. We see that many are being led astray because of many of these things. And so that brings us up to speed at what we're going to be looking at in verses 11 through 21. Um, but before we get started, I want to pray for us. Um, Lord, we thank you just for this time that we get to have together. And God, I just thank you for this opportunity to speak. Um, Lord, I'm humbled by it. And, uh, and Lord, I just pray that you would just um, open up our eyes and ears to be able to hear from you. Um, God, that you would just use the words um, that I speak. God, that you would use them for your glory. Um, and God, to help us see you more clearly and to be able to serve you more faithfully. Um, and Lord, if there's anything that I say that is contrary to that, God, that you would blot it out. And so, Lord, we, we love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. All right, so let's look at it. So as we jump into verse 11, we're kind of jumping into the middle of the, the conversation that Paul is having with Timothy. With Timothy, So he has warned him against false teachers. He's warned him against those um, that are inside of the ministry for financial gain. And so we jump in with verse 11 into the main thrust of the passage. And he says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Jumps right on into it. And what we see here is that using the title of man of God, it has many implications um, for Timothy and for all of us um, that are inside of the church. That with the title of man of God, that he is kind of setting the foundation for all of the rest of the exhortations that he will give to Timothy. So, let's look at it. Man of God. This title is only used here in the New Testament 
but it has been used several times throughout the Old Testament. We see it used um, as far back as Moses, and then used several times to describe several of the prophets. What each of these examples have in common is that um, each of these men were called to proclaim God, the Word of God, to a world that was strongly opposed to it. Paul is using these examples to get Timothy's attention. Timothy knows that strong instruction is getting ready to follow because of this title. These are men that Timothy knew, would have known, um, and Paul is giving him a new title. We see at the beginning of 1 Timothy um, that he is a son in the faith. That's how Paul described Timothy. But here he's calling him the man of God, that no longer are you a child, no longer are you a son in the faith, one that is just continuing to learn and to grow, but now you are a son of God, or a man of God that needs to stand firm and lead this congregation. So in the narrowest sense of this letter, we see that Paul is speaking directly to Timothy. But as we can see with this, is that many of the things that we're getting ready to talk about are for all of us. All of us that are leaders inside of the church, whether on staff or whether you're a Bible study leader, you're a life group leader, um, whether you're a small group leader, for every single one of us that claim to follow Christ, he's getting ready to give us all um, of these things that we are to be known as, um, as followers of Christ. And so I've got a little roadmap for us as we're getting ready um, to go into our time. And so we will see that the man of God or followers of Christ are to be known for what you flee from, what you follow after, what you fight for, and what you are faithful to. And then we'll look at some closing words to the rich, um, and then ultimately Paul's uh, words to their leader, Timothy. So let's jump right on into it. So we are known for what we flee from. So he says, you, O man of God, flee these things. Paul tells Timothy to flee the characteristics of false teachers. Why? Because those things do not portray the gospel and those um, that have been transformed by it and now proclaim it in their words and in their lives. We must understand the seriousness of the charge, though, that he tells us to flee these things, not to stay around it, not to flirt with it, not to let it stick around, not to be in the same presence of, but he's calling us to flee these things. It's important that he uses the word flee here because there are times in our lives where we lose the seriousness of sin. So many times that we forget that sin is crouching at your door and its desire is contrary to you, but that you must rule over it. The sin desires us in Genesis 4, 7. It says that our adversary is a roaring, roaring lion that is looking to, for someone to devour in 1 Peter 5, 8. We, uh, we can never forget the deceitfulness of sin and that it wants nothing more than to separate us from God by any means necessary. And so we must flee from it. We must flee from sin that wants to entangle us. Whenever we think of fleeing, um, I think of Joseph with Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39, when she continuously wanted Joseph um, to, to sleep with her, and that she ultimately traps Joseph, and Joseph flees from that situation, leaving his cloak in her hand. We see that he doesn't at all try to um, entertain the invitation of sin, but that we see that he runs completely from it. This just gives us a, a physical picture of what it looks like for us to flee the, from sin. Um, but then we also see a different example of David. That David for so long was one that was conquering um, nation after nation, winning war after war. But then we see in 2 Samuel 11 that he decides to stay back. 
and to send his army on, and that we see that he is up on the rooftop when he sees Bathsheba bathing. But what does he do? During the time that he's here, he becomes idle. He's no longer fighting. He's no longer having any um, enemy that is behind him that he is looking out for. And then we see in that moment when he's on top of the rooftop and he sees Bathsheba that he doesn't run from that. But we see that he stays there and he continues in it. And then from that point on in the story, we see the sin. We see the destruction. We see the death and the sorrow that follows. And so, guys, we cannot, um, us as Christians, we cannot allow just sinfulness um, and just the sin that we see in our lives and the sin that we see here in this passage um, to continue um, in our lives, we have to flee from it by any means necessary. In this passage, we see that some of the things that they were challenging was discontentment. There will always be grass that is greener on the other side. There's always going to be things in this world that we are wanting. There's always going to be more that we want to have, more possessions, more money, more fame, uh, more prestige, more influence. All of these different things are things that we all struggle with which leads to us agreed um, for gain that several of these false teachers had, that you can always have more of something. The world is always wanting us to be chasing after things that it says that will satisfy us, but none of them ever will. But we see that ultimately all of these things take their root in our pride, thinking that we deserve more than what we actually have, that in contentment, that we, pride goes completely against that, saying that, Lord, that we want to have more than what you're able to give to us that we deserve more than what you're able to give to us. Instead of being content in what he has given us, in the food and the clothing and the shelter that he has so graciously given to us, even though none of us deserve it. This is all completely contrary to how we have been called to be in Christ. When you think of these sins, that these are not small sins. These are not sins that are easily killed from our flesh. They are not innocent. Paul is telling us to flee or to run from these things. And I think that we can all find a general attitude towards sin in this. And that this should be our attitude towards sin. So just a question for this morning. Let's just think about our sin for a little bit. What sin are you running from this morning? As you think about your life, as you think about your week, as we think about our lives that we live daily, none of us are exempt from sin. All of us still struggle with sin. And so guys, what, are, what is something that we are running from? As we look down this list, the Holy Spirit help us to see the sin that so entangles us, that we see from verse 9 that it wants to um, trap us as a snare, that sin has nothing good in mind for us, that it wants to capture us and lead us away from Christ. And so that leads us into everything else that Paul, or that Paul is starting to teach Timothy. He says, but as for you, O man of God, Flee these things. Flee the sin that is around you. Flee the false teaching that you see. Have nothing to do with it. But what we see here is that, um, that we are not called to only put off sin, but that we are called to put on Christ. That so oftentimes, I think for us as Christians, and especially as young Christians, we hear about sin and we don't want anything to do with it. Because we understand that sin is what put Jesus Christ on the cross in our place. That oftentimes we just start saying we just need to block out the sin that's in our lives, cut out the sin that's in our lives. But we see that that's, not, that's just only half of the equation, that we put off sin, but that we are called to put on Christ. In Romans 13, 14, it says that. And so that is exactly what Paul encourages us to do. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, but pursue other things. 
We see that we are known for the things that we flee. We are known for the things that we follow after. So he tells us, he says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. In the Greek, these six character traits or these six virtues um, are listed in kind of two by twos in kind of a poetic manner. And so we see that each of these things are coupled um, and that they each have a different meaning for us. And so as we look at um, pursuing righteousness and godliness, um, we see that one of them has an external behavior and the other one is a motive of the heart. Whenever we think of righteousness, he says to pursue righteousness. This is not the righteousness that we are giving at the point of salvation, the imputed righteousness that Christ gives us through his finished work on the cross, but this is the righteousness that is transformed through understanding what Christ has done for us, that it results in a holiness of life, that we are called to do what is right in the relation with God and man, that our lives should be marked by obedience to God's commands, that there should be an uprightness um, that marks our lives and a fairness in dealing with others that are around us. And so if you think about it, that righteousness, um, is, it affects those um, in relationship around us. That we should be in, in right relationship with God and then also with man. And where we were once in rebellion against God, that we strive to obey God's commands. That where and once we probably did not treat others fairly because we didn't see them the way that God sees them as being created in his image and deserving of respect that now we deal in fairness with others that are around us. So righteousness has a way of correcting the relationships that we have around us. But this is coupled with godliness. So if we think about righteousness as a um, horizontal, we think of godliness as the vertical part of the relationship that we are supposed to be pursuing. We learned about this um, in the previous passage, that godliness with contentment is great gain. That godliness is a value in every way. When I think of godliness, godliness can be referred to as allowing God to be Lord over every part of our lives. It is the process of our lives going from being self-centered to becoming God-centered. So whenever I like to think about godliness, I think about a bicycle wheel, okay? Think about the bicycle wheel, we have the, the center part, I guess the hub, and then we have all the different spokes um, that go off of that. And a lot of times whenever we think about that, it's, it's what the entire wheel revolves around. Um, and so that is a picture of our lives. And for us, um, before we were in Christ, and a lot of times even after we've come to follow Christ, we struggle with being ourselves being the center of that. And we are called to become more Christ-centered, to be God-centered, to allow him to be Lord over every single part of our lives. When we come under his lordship, we are all about his kingdom coming and his will being done in our lives and in this world. So he becomes the center. And each of the spokes represents different areas of our lives um, that oftentimes we try to compartmentalize. There we go. I got it. Because oftentimes we just like to think of our life in these different compartments. And there's a lot of them that we let God into, but then there's a lot of them that we try to hide from God. But as we grow in godliness, we want to allow God to be Lord in every single one of those areas. So just to list a few. So we think about our finances, our life on social media, our life inside the home versus outside in the public, my church life versus my life when I'm with my friends, how I am at work compared to, when, to who I am when I'm at home. Each of these are spokes that we have to give to God. Each one of these areas are no longer just for us 
to keep to ourselves, but they're a part of that bicycle wheel. And when we come under the lordship of Christ, we grow in godliness, meaning that he is now at the center. Spurgeon called these two virtues um, the self-watch of the pastor, so godliness and righteousness. But they also go together well for us as well. It says when we um, get these two together, godliness and righteousness, they can be very powerful. But also, if they get out of balance, they can be very dangerous. If we err on the side of godliness and we do not allow the truth to transform our actions, we could come across as a hypocrite. But if we only focus on the outward righteousness, but we are not growing in the grace and seeing how God is transforming us through the Spirit, then before long we are only going to become concerned with actions. And, there will probably, and we will probably become very legalistic. So we see that the way that these two things intersect, that righteousness, our relationship with others, and then godliness that we grow in, that those things as they come together can create a great picture of growth inside of our lives. But that it's also a great um, kind of a guardrail for our lives to see where maybe sometimes we're just growing too much in knowledge and we're not allowing that truth to come into our lives. Or that a lot of times we can be focused too much on the actions and not allowing God to really transform our heart through the truth of what he's done for us in the gospel. So the next two that we look at are faith and love. So we see righteousness and godliness, we see faith and we see love. With faith, we see a dependency on God that he is in control of all things and that we trust in his power, purpose, plan, provision, and his promises. We trust that God will keep and fulfill his word. It is also our faith in him um, for salvation through Christ. And we have faith in Christ that he has done um, for us something that we could have never done for ourselves. When we place our faith in Christ, it is placing the salvation, the forgiveness of our sins outside of ourselves and what Christ has done on the cross. But we see that faith is also coupled with love. To be a reflection of the love that God has already shown us in Christ that is unrestrained, that is unrestricted, the love of God. For others, um, for others and for the lost, we are called to love out of Christ first loving us. In Matthew 22, 37 and 39, it reflects that we are to love God with all of who we are and that we are to love others as ourselves. We are called to love as God has loved us and called to love who God loves. Just a great picture. And all of these have to do with just the inward virtues of our heart, so our faith and our love. But then we see that the last two are the external virtues. It says that we look at perseverance um, and that we also look at um, steadfastness. Or steadfastness and gentleness, sorry. So when we look at um, steadfastness, we think of perseverance. We think of what it means to remain under or to remain loyal. When we think of perseverance, we think of remaining strong in the midst of trials. We think of Christ who persevered or endured or had steadfastness even unto the point of death. We think of missionaries across the world that persevere um, unto death um, for the gospel. And we are called to pursue to that extent. That we are called to preserve all the other things that we go through in life, but that ultimately that we're called to preserve even unto the point of death as our Savior did for us. And we are called to preserve, persevere, or to have steadfastness with gentleness. As we know that we have been called um, to the great cause of the gospel, we understand that ultimately we persevere, we ultimately have steadfastness, um, is all because God is preserving each of us. 
that what he's called us to is a tall task, but that we don't do all of this within ourselves, but that God is ultimately the one that is preserving us, and that ultimately he is the one that is allowing us to be steadfast. And so that allows us to enter into situations with gentleness, knowing that it's not anything that we do, but it's because of what God is doing in us. That gives us humility, and it gives us gentleness in sharing what Christ has done on our behalf. So, why do all these things matter? Is that each of these combat the false teachers and their motives and their actions in the previous verses. Godliness and righteousness seek out the truth of the gospel, but instead of puffing up, it humbles us and calls us to serve others. Faith and love helps us to see everything that God has already done for us in Christ, and therefore, instead of producing envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among God's people, we promote unity as the body of Christ, which will produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentle and self-control. Sorry. So we see that each of these things that we are running from sin, that we are pursuing these godly virtues that Paul has laid out for us, that reflect our Father, that reflect the gospel and how it has transformed our lives. But then we also see that we are known for what we flee from. We know we are known for what we um, pursue. But then we really get into the to a main part of the passage that we are known for what we fight for. In verse 12, he tells us to fight the good fight of faith. He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many. In this passage, we see that we are called to fight the good fight of faith. Timothy was getting ready to proclaim the gospel to the people of Ephesus and to his local congregation. He was a young minister. And so Paul is trying to help him understand exactly what he's getting himself into. Paul tells him that he is getting ready to go and to fight the good fight of faith, which is rooted in his confession, and I think that it's very important for us to see. So we fight the good fight of faith. We take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul is urging Timothy these things. Paul is urging Timothy to remember his calling that he confessed in front of many witnesses. Remember this, of what you have been called to. Remember what you have placed your trust in that has given him eternal life and take hold of that reality and fight the good fight of faith. So let's look at this. So he says, remember your calling. Timothy was called by God's sovereignty to salvation and to proclaim the word of God. In 2 Timothy 8 and 9, it says this. It says, therefore, Paul is telling him this again. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God, who saved us um, and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave, in us, or gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This is a calling that God has put on Timothy's life, that he was called into salvation and that he is called into mission. That for Timothy, this is specifically ministry, but for all of us that we've all been called to other things. Some of us, it could be missions, uh, ministry. Some of us, it could be to continue the Great Commission. For some of us, it's to be salt and light. Um, that, that God has called us into all the different vocations that we have, whether we're teachers, whether we're coaches, whether we're a small group leader, whether we're parents, all of these different things, God has called us into those things. Paul urges him um, just to remember this. Remember your calling, because I think that that's what 
is ultimately at the core of everything that we do, is that we have to remember that all the things that God has brought us into, he has called us to. That he has given us new life, that he has given us a new mission, um, and that we are called to live that out for him. We see that this is also professed amongst many witnesses. That this would have been professed by Timothy at the point of baptism and at his ordination. That this was his public proclamation for following Christ and devoting himself to God. In our salvation, we have the forgiveness of sins, a restored relationship to God, and we have eternal life with God. Okay? And so all these things is what he has called us to. We see that he has called us, that we have been saved by his grace, that we were um, called to this before even time began. And so we are called, um, and then we are commissioned. But as we look at this, that we remember our calling, that we also have to take hold of eternal life, that we have been given eternal life in Christ, that this has changed everything about us, that no longer are we dead in our trespasses, but that we have been made alive in Christ. And so what Paul is urging Timothy to do is to take hold of this eternal life that he has been called to, and to get a grip on it, to think about the eternality of the gospel, that it has eternal ramifications for all of us. Understand that the gospel has eternal implications for every soul that you encounter. Eternity helps us understand the good fight of faith. He says, Timothy, you are devoting your life to the faith in the gospel. You are to fight for your own faith, that you're to fight the fight of faith um, for the faith of those um, in the lives of your hearers, that all of this, the, etern- the eternity has a huge aspect on the way that we look at our lives and the way that we look at what we've been called to. When we think about the fight that we are engaged in and the fight that Timothy was engaged in, we understand that our fight, our good fight for faith, is grounded in our own faith and what we have placed it in. Our faith is ultimately revealed in the word, revealed word of God. It is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, And that is what we proclaim with our heart. And that is what we profess in front of many witnesses. This confession of Christ as Savior and Lord um, was still being fought for in Timothy's day. And I think that's something that's important for us to understand is that we have the entire um, Bible here, but that at the time of Timothy, that all these things were still being passed down um, in apostolic succession, meaning that the appointed apostles or eyewitnesses of Christ were still writing about all of these things that were going on, um, the, uh, their eyewitness accounts of Christ um, that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. The New Testament was still being formed by this point um, and was being sent out as letters to the surrounding churches. And so Timothy was to preserve what the Lord was saying through the apostles. That is, Jesus Christ is the Son of God that came to earth and lived a life that was sinless and died a sinner's death on, in our place on the cross as a perfect atoning sacrifice and was raised from the dead, proclaiming victory um, over sin and death and providing the forgiveness of sins and salvation and restored relationship with God for those that believe in him. And so those are all the same things that we are called to protect and to proclaim. But we also have to understand is that all of these have, that if the gospel is true, that it has eternal ramifications for, all, for every single soul that we're around also, that in Timothy's life and in our lives, is that if the gospel is true, that if Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is our only way to be saved, then we have to understand um, that that is the truth for those that know him, and that's for the truth for also those that do not know him. And that we are called to proclaim this message to others. And this, Timothy, is going to face opposition from every angle. 
There are false teachers all around him and inside of his congregation that are trying to, to cause people to look away from this. So fight the fight for your own faith. That as we look at this, that as we are fighting the good fight of faith, we are fighting for the gospel, but then also we have to fight for our own faith in this. And what does this mean? Is that we have to look to Christ. Whenever you think of, um, it says in the, the song, bind my wandering heart to thee. Our hearts want to wander. Our hearts want to find other things to place our faith in. That is why scripture reading is a discipline. It is training ourselves to know the truth. It is training ourselves to look at Christ daily. And it grows our love and our knowledge of God. And so guys, every single day, our faith is being challenged. Every single day, we are looking for other things to place our faith in. And so we have to look to Christ. We have to fight the good fight of faith in looking to him. We have to fight to look at him every single day because it's easy. Whenever you wake up, the first thing that a lot of us go to is the phone. We go to check the emails. We go to check the text messages. We go to check social media. And then an hour or two goes by, and then it's really time to get started with the day. And our day is already just started and is being guided by all the other things inside of the world that, that want our faith to be found in it. But if we're fighting the good fight of faith, then we have to fight to have discipline to be looking to Christ at the beginning of the day or to look at him throughout the day because this is ultimately what our faith is produced out of. But that he's also fighting for the faith of his hearers, that we also, that as we know the truth, that as we fight for our own faith, that we are also called to share the faith that we have in Christ and that we need to do it accurately. We need to know what God has revealed about himself and understand it to the best of our knowledge of what he is saying about himself. We do the work of the evangelist to study the scriptures so we can accurately and faithfully speak truth of the gospel into the lives that are around us. Timothy was charged to do that for those that are in his, in his congregation, and we are called, like Timothy, to define the gospel and, and every aspect of it, that we should know it, and that we need to understand where people try to twist it into something that is false and contrary. We need to be willing to fight um, for the gospel. This is a good and noble fight um, to give our lives to because ultimately it is all that matters for every soul in the world. And so as we were thinking about, or as we had our missions conference last week, I just started to think about what Bill Wolf had said whenever he was given just a testimony, his own testimony, but then also just sharing what he was doing all around the world. Bill Wolf said that, he, um, that his answer to the question of what's the most important thing in life, and he said that it is knowing Christ. And then what is the most important thing that we could ever do in this life? And he said it is to help others come to know Christ. That whenever we think about what is the most important thing for anybody is that they know Jesus, that they know that their sins can be forgiven, that they know that they can have true life in Christ. That's the most important thing for us to know. That's the most important thing for others to know. And so as we fight the good fight of faith, that's what we have to remember is that this is ultimately the most important thing inside of this life. When I think about how both Bills, Bill Wolf and Bill Sims, have given their lives to the good fight of faith, spreading the word of God across um, so many obstacles of language, of location, and hostility, that they have given their lives to this, to raise money to this, to help the efforts of doing this, um, that many others have come alongside them with the technology that makes all these things possible. I think about all of our missionaries that we have heard of um, and how they have given their lives to this good fight of faith. But, as we think about this, are we all called to fight the good fight in the exact ways that they are? No. 
or every single one of us need to just go and jump on the Jesus film and go and help them do everything that they're doing. No, he's called us to all different things. But are we all called to fight the good fight of faith? Yes. Parents are called to fight the good fight of faith in discipling their children. Youth are called to the good fight of faith for their friends that are around them and to be an example of the love of Christ. With children, you're called to fight the good fight of faith in just learning Scripture and learning the stories that Miss Rika and the other leaders are teaching upstairs, that those things, that we bring those things into our minds, that we memorize those things, that we think about those things, and that it helps us understand God more and what he's calling us to do. But these are all parts of the fight of the good faith. Whenever I think about my own fight, that I'm called to fight the good fight of faith to equip our students in their fight through the studying of the scriptures. I think about grandparents and those that are older. You are also called to fight the good fight of faith and preparing the next generation. When I think about our church and the foundations that our church has been um, founded on, it's always been about having a high view of Scripture and to always present it faithfully. And we recently had a celebration of the many years of God's faithfulness to us in this. But the main thing that we have to understand is that all those things are great. That having all of the knowledge, having a high view of Scripture is an important thing. But what we must understand is that if we want to be faithful in the good fight, that the upper generations, we need to be willing to share that with the generations that are below us. We need to pour into them. We need to help them and come alongside them in the things that we have learned and the things that have been taught to us and teach that to them. Because we are preparing the next generation. That the faith is, is one that has been passed down from generation to generation. That we are to, to maintain it, that we are to guard it, but that we are also to pass it down faithfully. And so if we aren't willing to fight the good fight of um, the faith for this generation, then what's going to happen to the next? And that gives us all the energy that we need and to do the things that God has called us to in this fight. But as we continue to look at all these things, that we are to fight the good fight of faith, that we take hold of the eternal life um, to which we were called and about which he made the good confession in front of many witnesses. And then we see that now Paul is going to give Timothy another charge. He says, I charge you in the presence um, of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time, okay? So we see a couple of things here. This text is kind of, a, it's kind of hard to, to really understand, but we have to kind of piece it together. So Paul starts in verse 13. He says, I charge you. And then he talks about in the presence of who he is charging, in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ, who is the testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. But then what is the charge? Is to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Until when? Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. So he gives him a charge here. That when we looked at the commandment, he says that I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is this commandment that we see? The commandment here is a broad term. Um, and because there is nothing around it to truly modify it um, or to make it more specific, then we understand it all to be the revealed word of God, which Timothy is called then to preach. That all of this, all of the book um, that we have of the revealed word of God, that Timothy was called to do these things. Timothy is called to preach, to proclaim, to guard, and protect the word of God. So, let's just think about this for a second. This is kind of a big charge. 
that we see that this entire book is what Timothy is being called to, to protect, to guard, and to preach faithfully. If I was Timothy in that situation, and a lot of times as I've been studying this, I've seen that, that this is what I'm called to also, that this can kind of give us a little bit of a knot in our stomach. That we think about that we are called to know the scriptures, that we are called to, to understand what God is saying to us in the best of our ability in the context that it was written and what he was trying to say to his original audience that we can apply to today's audience and those that we are proclaiming it to. We see that this is what we're called to do. So we keep the entire um, revealed word of God, but how are we supposed to keep it? He says, unstained and free from reproach. Did not my stomach just grew a little bit. Because these things bring us back to the points that Paul has already made. So unstained. In 1 Timothy 4.16, he says, keep a close eye on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this or persevere in this. For by doing so, you will save both you, yourself, and your hearers that we need to keep an eye on our own lives, that we are to be above reproach, that we are supposed to um, live um, godly lives, ones that are an example of what we are proclaiming. And so we must keep an eye on ourselves, that we must also keep an eye on our teaching to make sure that we are proclaiming Christ faithfully, that we are presenting God faithfully, to watch over our life, to be above reproach, to keep your witness before others um, pure, to watch over the teaching, to proclaim the word faithfully. As we talked about before with each of these um, commands that he is giving in this charge, he said that you could really screw this up. Be careful as to how you walk and to be walked as wise and not as unwise. So all of this is extremely hard that for us that we are called to proclaim the word, um, but that we are also called to watch over our lives, to keep it unstained um, and free from reproach. So how in the world are we supposed to do this? That's the question that I had as I got to this because this is hard that we're supposed to keep it um, pure, that we're supposed to proclaim all of God's word faithfully. But the beauty of it is, is that whenever we see something that's very hard inside of Scripture, he always points us back to Christ and back to God, who is our ultimate hope in all of this. Who is the presence that we do this in? He tells us, I charge you in the presence of God. And this is a huge thing for us, is that we are not doing this alone, that we are in the presence of God, that he is with us as we do these things. But then Paul gets even more specific that we are in the presence of God who gives life to all things. This charge gives us um, two things, a challenge and a comfort. The challenge is that we seek to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. We are in the presence of its author at all times. To preach and proclaim or confess the whole counsel of God, which is not always easy. That if we preach everything that the Bible teaches, it's not always going to be the easiest thing on the ears of those that listen. We are called, we have to be faithful to preach sin as well as forgiveness, condemnation as well as justification. The loving God, that we preach about the loving God um, that is also a God who is holy and a righteous judge that cannot leave sin unpunished. Paul knew that this would be hard for a young preacher. He knew that there would be times where he, instead of understanding that he's always in the presence of God, that he would understand that it would be a temptation to only focus on being in the presence of men, that those that are going to be judging him, that those that could be causing him um, to not speak the word faithfully. Paul urges him to remember that we are, and our listeners are, in the presence of God, and that is ultimately all that matters. Also, that being in his presence should, be, um, should cause us to be faithful um, as we proclaim his revealed word in a way that is faithful to who he is. So the encouragement is that we are in the presence of God, but that he is the God that gives life to all things. 
He is the preserver, sustainer, and maintainer of all life. That he will do all of those things for us the allotted days that he has given us. That as we go out and we proclaim God's truth, as we proclaim Christ to everyone that is around us, that he is the one that will preserve us as we do so, that he sustains us as we do so, and that he is the maintainer of our life in every single step of the way. He will sustain us through anything that we go through here on earth while we proclaim his glory. He is also um, the giver of eternal life, that he will sustain us in this life um, and in the life that, ha- that is to come, that he has given us through Christ Jesus. So what does that give us? That gives us freedom to proclaim the word. That pr- gives us freedom to proclaim um, the whole counsel of God. That It gives us freedom to do all of this with strength and with courage because we know that nobody can do anything to us, that we are ultimately God's and that he is holding us. We are also charged in the presence of Jesus Christ, our perfect Savior, our perfect example, who in his testimony for Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Jesus has already done what Timothy was being called to do. That Pontius Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus fearly replied, it is as you say in Matthew 27, 11. That is the good confession that he makes. Our Lord boldly stood his ground, spoke the truth, and entrusted his life to God. That's the example that we see. So we have the God who gives life. We have the perfect example, our Savior, who has already done what we've been called to do. That in the, in the presence of um, his enemies, in the presence of men, that he was able to make the good confession. He was faithful even unto death. And we are called to be faithful despite the circumstances and to speak the truth of the gospel boldly. So how long was Timothy to do this? It says, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ or until Timothy died. That's the same charge that every single one of us have, that we are to proclaim the truth of Christ until the appearance of Christ. And when is that going to happen? It's going to happen at the proper time. That could be three years from now. That could be 10 years from now. It could be 10,000 years from now. It could be tomorrow. But that we are supposed to proclaim the good news of Christ until God has brought Christ back and he has established his earthly earthly reign and his, his kingdom fully. But Paul ends this charge with a beautiful um, doxology of praise to God. And this is what Tim read from as we were doing our prayer. It says that he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. What Paul strives to do here is that as he sees that Timothy, that this this is a tall task for him to do to proclaim the gospel fully, to preserve the word, to guard the word, and to proclaim it um, against all costs, he wants Timothy to have a huge view of the God that he serves. That he is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This sings to God's absolute sovereignty over all powers, human and divine. We have nothing to fear. It is our God, um, if our God is for us, who can be against us? that he is who alone has immortality. This lifts God up as the bestower of life, that we humans are immortal because we will exist after death, whether in heaven or in hell. But this is only because he who possesses life has created us so, that he is the absolute sovereign of all life, that he who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. This celebrates his holiness and his purity as it is manifested in his glory. That all that anyone has ever seen um, of God is the afterglow of his glory that we see in Exodus. 
that God is sovereignly beyond all humanity um, or creation. And that we see that ultimately to him be the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. It says that he alone is worth and he alone um, is worthy and that he alone has dominion over all things. So what does all of this mean? This is our encouragement and his message is clear. Though your calling is immense, even though this seems like something that is impossible to do, even though this seems that it's something that is far greater than you, that the God who calls you is far greater and that he will enable you to do it. Paul has given Timothy the greatest picture of God that he can, and we can all learn something from this. That as we look at the struggles that we have in our present life, whether that's fleeing sin or pursuing um, righteousness, is that our God is the one that enables us to do it, and that he is far greater than any power inside of the world. So then, let's keep going. We see that Paul starts to make kind of a turn. He almost turns on a dime as we look at the rest of these. Um, in verse 17, it says, as for the rich, so after giving Timothy this huge picture of who God is um, and who um, he serves, he kind of goes on a little bit of a sidetrack, it seems. But we can see from it um, that he's actually being very intentional. It says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, on the uncertainty of riches but of God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. This seems kind of strange because we look at before um, in, in verses uh, 10 and before that we are seeing those that are pursuing the ministry um, for monetary gain. We see that they're pursuing it for the wrong reasons. And so what it seems like is that 17 is dealing with the rich again, dealing with those that are looking for money. Um, that that should be under verse 10, that we should put 11 with verse 20 and on because all those things seem to go together. But what we see from this is that ultimately that Paul is actually making the contrast. That those um, in, the, in the previous verses of chapter 6, that they were ones that were striving for these things. That they were false teachers that were striving for wealth um, and that saw godliness as a means of gain. But what we see in verse 17 through 19 is actually a different audience. He's looking at those that are already rich, but that he's also looking at those um, that are inside of the church. And so this is... Um, extremely uh, good for us to look at. So let's look at it. So he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides every, us with everything to enjoy. Whenever we think of being rich, what are some things that you think of? A lot of times whenever we see this, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. And a lot of times probably just check, we just check out. Because whenever we think of somebody that is rich or those that are rich, we often think of those um, that live a lifestyle with no worry, no need, no want, that they get to do whatever they want to, whenever they want to, and however they want to. But what does rich look like in Paul's day? What is the richness that he is looking at? And this time, in order to be rich, all you needed was to have more than the mere essentials of food, clothing, and shelter. One commentator said um, that I was looking at that in our day and age, it means to have discretionary dollars, meaning that, that we have money that is left over after covering, covering the essentials of life. In this sense of rich, we're all included in this. Most of the, all, most if not all the Western world, but every single one of us, because all of us have been blessed greatly by God. And so that means that we have some instruction in this. He says, as for the rich in this present age, 
charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. That for all of us that have the discretionary dollars that we have more than um, that we have more than enough, that we have more to cover all the essentials that we have inside of life, that we oftentimes can fall um, into being haughty. What does the word haughty mean? In the Greek, it means to think of oneself or to think highly of oneself. That whenever we gain riches or whenever we have wealth, one of the greatest temptations is for us to think more highly of ourselves, and we are tempted to think highly of ourselves um, as higher of others um, that are in lower socio socioeconomical status as well. That is, we have been given um, riches um, from God that ultimately all things do come from Him, is that a lot of times it could cause us to think that we are the source of those things. That it also gives us um, a temptation of thinking that we may be better than others because of that. But that there's another thing that we're also tempted to do, is that we are also tempted to set our hope on the uncertainty of riches. But the key word that we see there is that those are uncertainties. There's uncertainty when we think about money. We are tempted to base our lives on something that is uncertain. In our day and age, I think that we have a certain insight into this. We see an economy that has ebbs and flows. We see a stock market that is up and down, and we see one that is down and down sometimes. We see the effects of inflation. The value of the dollar is not something to place our value and our hope in. And that is exactly what he is telling us. But he says that we should be placing our hope on God. That if we place our identity in this, that if we think that we are better than somebody else because of the money that we have, what happens when we lose that money? If we place our hope in that, what happens when the stock market crashes? What happens if we lose our job? What happens if we lose our prestige? Is that that wrecks our entire life. That setting our foundation on money, a, a foundation that is uncertain, means that at any point it could fall out from under us. And so that's what we have to see is that, that we do not need to place our, our lives on these things, that we do not need to place our hope in these things, but that we ultimately place our hope in God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That we have to understand that ultimately we come into this world, I like thinking about what it says in our earlier passage in chapter 6. Um, let me see, let's see. Let me see. Um, for in verse 7 it says for we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of this world whenever we think about what we brought into this world I think a lot of times we think about um, the sin that we have inherited the sin that we bring um, into this world that's all that we bring ultimately to the table there's no reason for us to be haughty for no reason for us to think highly of ourselves because the only thing that we have is our sin that's the only thing that we can bring to the table and with that sin there's nothing that we can do about it in and of ourselves that there is ultimately no hope that we have apart from Christ, but we see that he has given us everything, that he provides us everything to enjoy, that ultimately that he has provided Christ for us in order to be saved, um, but that every single other thing apart from that is just an extra blessing. But the key word that we see here is to enjoy, that he provides everything for us to enjoy, but he does not provide everything else for it to lord over us or for us to worship as an idols. But the way that we truly enjoy the riches that he has provided us is we understand that we have nothing in and of ourselves and that ultimately he has given us everything that we have. And this changes the attitude that we have towards those riches, is that we are to do good, to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for us treasures of themselves as a good foundation for the future 
so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. That this changes everything, that we are to do good works. What are the good works that we see? Is that we invest in the lives um, of our family, not causing them to also um, pursue um, just to pursue um, pleasure and the things that we have, but that ultimately that we use those in a way, that we steward those in a way that helps us to understand that God has given us all these things. That we invest in our local congregation and in the work that our church and in the churches in our area are doing to spread the gospel, and that we also invest in the big K kingdom of God that is all around the world. So we are to be generous and ready to share. This has to do with the attitude of the heart towards wealth. We are tempted to hoard our wealth for ourselves, but when we learn to trust God, we will be willing to give faithfully where he has called us to, and sometimes even under special circumstances. That it changes the way that our hearts view the things that we have. When we understand that God has given us everything, then we are willing to give that back to him. I think about the grain that, um, that we sent overseas that our church gave to. I think about the money that we have sent in support over to the Ukraine. I think about our missions offering now as we are wanting to see the Jesus film be able to be showed in Turkey. That those are some special circumstances that go outside of the normal giving, but that when God has called us to give to those things, our church, and I'm so thankful for this, has been always faithful to do so. That ultimately that we are to store up treasures in heaven and not here on earth. That we are to be invested in God's kingdom and the expansion of the gospel all over the world. That that's what our monetary and the things that God has given us should go to, but that ultimately as we do this, that we are storing up the treasure for, our, for themselves as a good foundation for the future, that as we are investing in the lives of others, as we are investing in the gospel being shared all around the world, um, that this is laying for ourselves a good foundation for the future, but that also that it allows us to take hold of that which is truly life. We have already been given life in Christ, but to be a part of God's mission, to reach the lost all over the world, to give towards this, to be a part of this, to see God move and work and save lives. We already have eternal life, but the greatest part of that, apart from that, is being part of the mission of God. It's how we truly take hold of that which is truly life, because we are doing what God has called us to do. He has saved us, but then also we get to be a part of the mission that he originally called us to. So, that leads us to the last part of this chapter, the last part of this chapter, this last part of Timothy. With verse 20, it says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions um, of what is falsely known as not, called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith, and grace be with you. That this ends kind of the, the part um, with what we're fighting for, what we flee from, what we are pursuing, what we are faithful to. It ends the word um, that he has given to those that have riches, but that this is ultimately the conclusion, and we see that this is the conclusion of the whole entire book. He says, O Timothy, guard the deposit that is entrusted to you, that we are called to guard this, that um, all the contents of this letter, right doctrine, right view of God, right view of Christ, right view of ourselves, right view of others, the gospel, in other parts of the letter, the rule of faith, the canon of truth, this is divine revelation that is committed to his care to guard it with everything that you have. Guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you, that has been, that I, that Paul is giving to him, that he is passing down to him. This defines the essential work of the church and its leadership today. I love what he says here, is that we are just called to guard this. 
to guard the good deposit, to guard the truth. It is not our job to make up a new theology, but to guard and exposit this truth. This is the sign of a healthy church that we are coming up um, in, that we are not coming up with new truth, but that we hold up um, and proclaim the truth of God faithfully in what he has said. And so for us as the church, like this is what we are called to, is that we guard the words of God, but that we are also called to, called to avoid irreverent babble and contradiction, um, the false knowledge that we see, to avoid the traps of false teachers that want you to argue over something that is so simple. That we serve a God that has created all of us, that we as man are sinful um, and that we have sinned against the holy God, therefore standing in condemnation, that the God... Um, sent, that our God sent his one and only son to live a life that we could have never have lived, to die the death that we deserve, um, and that was raised from the dead, ultimately proclaiming victory over sin and death. And that for those that believe in him, we'll have eternal life and restored relationship to the Father. That there's nothing that's hard about this. And so why I go into the irreverent babble and the contradictions that are false knowledge, that are getting away from this truth, we're called to avoid those things. That what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, we have seen that some have swerved from the faith. That as we look at all of this, that, we, that there's ultimately um, consequences that if we do engage in these things, that by professing it, that we have seen that have some that have swerved um, from the faith. So we guard the good deposit, we avoid the irreverent babble, um, and for by pressing it, um, some have swerved from the faith. But then we ultimately see that at the end, that it is grace to you. I love that, that, that Paul ends his letter with this, that if all the things that he's called Timothy to, all the things that he's called the church to, all the things that he's called leaders to, all the things that he has called us to, that he ends it with grace be with you. So what do we see from this passage is that we flee sin, we pursue godliness, we fight the good fight of faith, we are faithful to the commandment of God, we remember the presence of God who gives life to all things, we remember that we are in the presence of Christ um, as our perfect example. We remember the glories of God, that we serve him above all things inside this world, that he is above all things inside this world, that he ultimately is the one that is worthy and has eternal dominion, that he has given us all things that we need, um, and that we are called to give back if he has asked us, um, asked of us, that we guard the good deposit, um, and that all of this that we do it through the grace of our um, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so if the band wants to come on up, um, we'll go ahead and have you all up here. But whenever I think about this, if we think about all the things that we are called to just inside of this passage, like there is so much um, that, is, that is just hard for us, that, that we're called to flee from sin, that we're called um, to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness, that we are fighting the good fight of faith daily for our own lives, for the truth, and for the truth um, that for, the, for those that are listening to us, that we encounter that we are supposed to take hold of the eternal life, that we understand that this life is not the only one that is here, but that we ultimately see that there is one that is to come, and so this gospel has eternal ramifications. And that we ultimately see that we are called um, to be preserving the truth, to proclaim it in all circumstances. And so whenever I think about this, I think about the stanza um, just from Amazing Grace comes to mind, and I think it would have been um, one that Timothy would have thought about as he read this letter, if it would have been written at that time. Um, but it says, Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. This grace that brought me safe thus far um, and grace that will lead me home. That all these things 
it's it's hard and a lot of these things are, are way bigger than any of us um, but that we see that, that God at the very end of this and he says grace be with you that it is his grace that allows us to accomplish these things it is the grace that allows us as a church to do these things it's the grace of God that allows us as individual followers of Christ to do everything that he has called us to so it just says again through many dangers tools and snares that we have already come that this grace that has brought me safe thus far is the grace that will lead me home and I'm just thankful for the grace that God has given us and we thank him for the grace that allows us to do everything that he has called us to do so just as we think about these things as we think about everything that he that Paul has instructed with Timothy here as we think about everything that we have seen in first Timothy I just think that we're just called to just reflect on all of these things. That we're called to reflect on on what God has called us to, that we are to uphold the church, that we are to uphold the word, that we are to love others, um, and just to proclaim the gospel in every single circumstance. And so just as we do that, let's just stand and sing. As we sing to the God um, that is over all things, that has um, eternal dominion over all things, that we just praise him for everything that he has done for us and praise him for the fact that he is the one that enables us to continue in what he has called us to. Let's just sing that verse of Amazing Grace. bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance.